The following program contains scenes of intense and explicit violence. Listener discretion is strongly advised. The artist was getting old. There was no denying it. At 110 years old, he should have been spending the last few decades of life in lavish retirement. He tried hard to ignore the whispers directed at his back by the younger members of his order. They said he was slowing down, that he was too old for wet work. He knew they were right, but he didn't care. The work was all that mattered. Tonight, he strode through Haven's dusty undercity streets with an air of self-assurance and brutal contempt. He could have ridden by Aerofint to his destination, but the freedom of uninhibited movement kept thought at bay. He was all but naked, girded by only a pleated black glam which fell to mid-calf. Like blood-filled veins, strands of crimson thread wove a tapestry of intricate symbols around the garment. With each stride, thick slabs of muscle rippled under coarse black fur, sprinkled liberally with patches of grey. He paid no more attention to the undercity rabble scurrying out of his way than the corpse pays to the hands of the mortician. It was not the artist's heavily muscled tail sweeping side to side which forced people to give him a wide berth, nor was it the array of knives or the two guns strapped to his glem. It was his eye, that coal-black murderous orb, glinting with naked malice, hooded by a ridge of metal-studded bone. To meet that eye was an invitation to be a subject in the purest form of artistic expression. The artist was inspired by many muses, and he immortalized them all, capturing their true essences with the tools of his craft. An assortment of knives for brushes and pastels, flesh and bone for a canvas. For profit or for pleasure, the artist wove tapestries of suffering, carved sculptures of meat, and painted still-life scenes of exquisite agony and he reveled in his trade. Sing for me. Let me hear the music of your existence. Yes, just like that. The seconds, the moments, the hours of pre-fatal agony when the blood pumped freely and the victim gasped and screamed painted such an exquisite portrait of suffering that he was often moved by a force within which he clung to with the frantic grip of a drowning man clinging to a rock. And that breath, that sweet mortal exhalation in which a life is snuffed out in a frenzy of primal terror was the very essence of what it meant to be truly alive and unconquerable. Thank <laughs> you.
You are listening to the Johnny Tiger Experience, Episode Nine. Today's quote: "You can only do great job when you love your work." I'm Johnny Tiger. This is my universe.
and here we are with episode nine. This is going to be a very long and very interesting, exciting episode. So I'm not going to ramble on too much since I'll be doing enough of that through the episode. But with us here today is a special guest, a very dynamic and diverse person. He is blind like myself,、uh, but he definitely got a lot more to share. He has、uh, various adventures and leads a very interesting life. He is a husband, a father. Um, an uh, audio engineer, an author, and a banker, and a martial artist. He is the owner and producer who created our intro today, called、uh, "The Artist," and also the intro song、uh, called "Freedom Fighter" was engineered by him as well. So please join me in welcoming our first ever.、Uh, Guest to be interviewed on the Johnny Tiger Experience podcast, the infamous Richardian. We are now on air with、uh, my old pal Remy. However, you say your last name, Chardier. Chardier. You know, always make me kind of think of Chardonnay. Yeah, I get that a lot. Yeah, <laughs> Remy <laughs> Martin. <laughs> Do you actually do you actually speak French? No, no, only the dirty words that nobody wants to hear on a podcast like this. Right, right, right. Okay, so why don't you take some time and tell everybody about you, what you do while you're here, your、uh, involvement with the Night Strike program and stuff like that. Why? Why am I here? Why are any of us here? <laughs> the big life questions. Start me off on something really difficult, why don't you? Thank you. <laughs>、uh, anyway, my my name is Remy Chartier. As I said, I live in Nanaimo, British Columbia. I am working at the Royal Bank here in、uh, Nanaimo. I am a father and a husband. I am a writer. I do audio、uh, audio production and sound design, mostly for audio theater. I do some music、uh, composition and a little bit of singing when、uh, when the time is right. Um, I got into self-defense because I want to be able to protect myself in the cases where the need arises. Luckily, that hasn't happened yet, and I'm hoping it's going to stay that way. And you are not、uh, totally blind, so talk a little bit about that because I think to most people,、uh, they they only know either black or white, right?、It's、like either you can see or you can't see, and a lot of people don't understand that、uh, gray area in between. Fifty shades of gray. Well, there's fifty shades of different、uh, visual conditions.、Um, I have what is called an optic nerve hypoplasia, which essentially means my optic nerves, when I was born, weren't quite developed enough to be useful. So essentially, my eyeballs work just fine. Everything's、uh, right where it's supposed to be, and my eyes can see perfectly. However,、uh, most of the signals don't get from my eyes to the brain, and what does come in ends up being dwindled. Is the best way to pronounce to to、uh, explain it. So, what a person might see if they look at a photo, for example, or an action sequence in a movie, they might know immediately what's going on. Whereas me, unless I have some sort of prior understanding of what I'm looking at, I might not get it. So, does that mean that you actually、um, get the image, but your brain doesn't translate it immediately? Pretty much, yeah. So, so I mean, say like a big action sequence in a movie is my is my best example. 
where there's so many things going on all at once, my brain can process that, okay, these people are moving, they're doing things, uh, but the intricacies of what they're doing usually escape me, unless somebody is describing to me what's happening, or, you know, audio description is happening, in which case I can then kind of go back and say, oh, this is when this happened, or, oh, this is where he threw this person off a building. Okay, that's good. So how does that translate to your day-to-day function, like uh, around the house, going to work? Uh, how much aid do you require? Well, I have the fancy, uh, trusty white cane that I mostly use for uh, ID purposes and impromptu sword fighting. Just, just and... to uh, fake, fake blindness, in another word. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm kind of on the weird cusp between being having enough sight to get around so I mean I use uh, I use my sight to get around quite consistently and if I know where I'm going I'm very fast at it whereas if I go to a place that I'm unfamiliar I tend to be a little slower and that kind of thing really translates to my day-to-day life if I'm in uh, I'm in a store for example and I don't know where things are if I'm on a particular website or a computer program that I've never used before I tend to be a little bit slower Whereas if I've done something enough times, um, I can get I can adapt very quickly and, and usually do a pretty good job navigating either whether it be visually, uh, in the case of certain navigation, or using uh, a screen reader or a braille display. I am of the uh, I'm low enough in my vision that I do use braille and a screen reader uh, quite a bit, even though I can also le- read large print. I'm kind of the uh, the best of both worlds, I guess you could say. Yeah, it definitely sounds like it. So you talk about shopping. When you go shopping, are you able to locate and identify a product or on your own, or do you require help in the store? I like help. Help is good. And the reason help is good is because I don't have endless hours to go shopping. I'm 35 years old, and I have a, a wife and a daughter and a, and a life outside of the shopping mall. So I, I would prefer help, if possible. I can do it on my own, but it tends to take longer. Thanks to the fantastic uh, applications on the iPhone, like uh, Seeing AI, for example, which recognizes products and speaks uh, text in pretty much real time, it helps a lot uh, when I go shopping. But still, it never helps, or it never hurts to have a pair of useful eyes to guide think, guide me around a little bit, just to save some time. Yeah, and of course, a pair of eyes that you can blame later if something goes wrong. Well, there's that. She told me so. <laughs> <laughs> they said this looked good, but apparently didn't. Luckily, most people are pretty good, so I usually trust. I trust in a lot of people uh, visually. And luckily, I haven't been burned too badly in the past because of doing so. We actually gave a shout out to uh, CNAI in the last episode. It is a really useful, uh, very unique new app. Now, have you heard about the uh, new thing that seems to be a uh, trend in talked about in the uh, blind community nowadays? Uh, what is that? Ira glasses? Ira, yes, I've heard of it. Spend a small fortune and people will tell you things. It's a great idea. Uh, I would probably try it, at least for the sake of trying it, if it wasn't more money a month than it's a great idea. Uh, I think see our uh, tap, not tap tap see. Sorry, be, uh, uh, be my eye. That's be my eyes. Yes, yeah. thank you. Uh, be my eyes tends to do a lot of the same things. I think that's actually been one of my questions all the time to people who uh, remote eye glasses. How is that 
uh, better than be my eye, and he said so much better that it's worth that amount of money. Well, that's a good question. Hopefully you can find somebody who's used both and they can compare it. Um, the biggest thing I think the difference is, and admittedly I don't have a whole lot of experience, is that Ira actually comes with uh, a pair of Google glasses, which you can wear, and that have a camera built in. So whatever you see or don't, uh, the person on the other end also sees. So I can see that being kind of kind of useful as well. That actually sounds a lot like the gear I use for filming most of the time. The pair yeah, of, yeah, actually, when I saw that the pair of glasses that you wore, I had no idea there was a hidden camera built into the glasses. Oh yeah, I'm like an old-time detective. That wasn't creepy at all. Yeah, yeah. Always pay attention. You know, watch what you're doing when you're near me. Don't uh, you know, scratch between your legs or anything like that. You shouldn't be looking at people's between their legs, Johnny. Well, That's it's a really high well. definition. You know, you can see everything. Every fold. Wow, this just got an entirely different podcast topic. <laughs> well, we are not really scripted. I mean, there were some questions I I want to uh, I want us to cover, but well, large largely we are just uh, going through this unscripted. Um, so, Remy and I go back way way far. Uh, you want to talk a little bit about when we met? Yeah, we met in Bo- at Bowen Island. Uh, I, it was a uh, camp for the visually impaired, uh, where they taught us uh, all sorts of technology-related things, and uh, just kind of basically let us socialize with one another in a in an interesting environment. It was definitely a lot of my favorite memories were there. Uh, I can't remember what year I met you, Johnny, but I believe it was I want to say 1999, maybe 2000. I, I think it was like uh, yeah, 98, 99, sounds like something like that. Yeah, that. when you get it all. When you get as old as we are, the years start to blur together a little bit. Yeah, especially those uh, painful, awkward teenage years. Yeah, admittedly, I kind of miss the teenage years. It was so much easier in so many ways. Well, that's because uh, that's because you went and got married and had kids. That's true. Yeah, yeah. that's very true. For me, it's still teenage year every day. <laughs> well, there are some good parts about that. I feel like a teenager a lot of the time, too. I'm 35 years old, almost, and I still feel like... I always say I'm a 35-year-old person trapped in the body of a 45- or a 50-year-old with the mentality of maybe a 25-year-old. I don't know if that's a good thing or bad thing. I don't know either. (laughs) Well, when we first met, uh, I know we were were actually roommates at the camp. Uh, That's right. Yeah. By the way, Bowen Island, for those of us, because... uh, podcast hopefully we'll go worldwide so uh, we don't know it's a, I don't know how would you explain the unheard of no one ever heard of island in uh, British Columbia Canada well Google Maps is a fantastic feature that you can pretty much look up any place on the world and it will show you exactly what that island looks like except for those mysterious places in the world that you can't and the interesting thing is, Bow Island really hasn't changed that much since we were there, unlike us. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> I went back, actually it was 2009, my wife and I went for a bit of a, the adult retreat, and it was crazy how little had really changed in the grand scheme of things. It was, yep. it was interesting. Yep. Still, ju- still just a one little store, no, no shopping center. No, it's true. 
but going back to where we met, yeah, we uh, yeah we met. We were roommates at Bowen Island. Uh, we did we put on a uh, every year they have a talent show, and so Johnny and I put on a bit of a of a play, uh, fantasy themed play, which uh, actually Johnny wrote uh, apparently long hours into the night, and we had a few actors that uh, that starred in that, and people still talk about it for one reason or another. So I think we we entertained people. I, I think I think we did, and you know that was the same year I got addicted to coffee because of that play. He doesn't blame me at all. No, no. <laughs> well, Remy was already working on his own novel at the time as well. It's true. So, as far as I know, you have you never finished that novel, but you are still hoping I to work on did. it. No, I never. You know, I never did finish that novel. Probably about uh, two years later, I stopped writing it. Um, having said that, though, the idea for that novel has sparked an entire—I guess you could say—series of, of book ideas that are almost um, there. I guess you could say they're indistinguishable from, or they're unrecognizable rather from from what that what it once was. Um, it's turned into quite a project. Which is overwhelming at times, but if I ever end up finishing some of it, it will actually be pretty enjoyable, I hope, to people. I want it to be. What's really interesting is a lot of people, when you meet them when they're teenagers, and then you meet again 10, 12 years later, which is basically what happened to us. Uh, a lot of people, they change a lot. You know, you, you meet them when they're teen- teenagers, they may be uh, wanting to become policemen or or a soldier or something, and then 10, 12 years later, they're fat and a couch potato and work in the office all day long, and it's like that childhood dream is long forgotten. But in your case, when we met, you are basically still uh, pretty driven, uh, wanting to be an author. It's always been my dream to be to be an author. It's uh, I have a lot of stories to tell, and uh, I have been told that I work pretty well with words, so yeah, it's definitely been something I've always wanted to do. Uh, I definitely do have an all-day office job, so I've kind of lost that aspect of, uh, uh, you know, or I should say, I've definitely gained that aspect of adulthood, for sure, but yeah, I definitely, the writing is still something that's very near and dear to me, and I do hope to one day stop editing every single chapter over and over and actually finish something. So why, why not take this chance to tell us a little bit about uh, the stories that you're working on and how, how you get to this point, what, what education you had to go through and stuff like that. Okay. For the prospective writer, especially in this internet day and age, there's really, I don't think there's really a whole lot of reason to take a whole bunch of writing classes. I've been in, uh, I've been in the creative writing department at Vancouver Island University for almost 10 years now. And I've done it that slowly so that I could go to work and stay out of debt. And in many ways, I actually really regret going and doing creative writing program, doing creative writing program, because while it did definitely make my writing better, it also kind of killed my drive to write for a while. Because there was just there's so many rules that they imply or that they that they give you, and then there's so many. It, it's just a little bit negative, I guess you could say. The workshopping was great. I didn't find I really learned a lot, and that was kind of my big regret. I wish I'd taken something that not only could I put into better practice in the real world, like something like psychology, um, and I could 
had a good job and maybe a good career, but it also would have helped with my writing. That was my original intent, um, but then I started with the creative writing program, and it just kind of just kept going. So I guess my advice to anybody would be don't worry so much about the creative writing programs and classes and courses. Find yourself, you know, some good podcasts. Find yourself some good, you know, maybe a mentor, uh, some online tutorials, and just write the story that you want to write. And if you're going to take courses, take courses in things that will inspire you. Literature, history, science, anything that inspires. And... I guess I should say, you know, if you can find people to collaborate with, you know, that's that's kind of fun too. Or if you can even find people that will read your writing and, and uh, just let you know what works and what doesn't, that's good too. But you don't have to spend thousands of dollars to take a whole bunch of courses when the internet is flooded with successful authors wishing, you know, willing to share their stories and their advice. Uh, Brandon Sanderson has a fantastic uh, YouTube channel devoted to the writing craft, especially for those who are interested in writing science fiction and fantasy, which is what I do. Um, and, you know, there's definitely other ones out there, too. And above all, read and read and read and learn your spelling. <laughs> so... Basically, what you're saying is uh, do more creating, do more writing, and learn less about creative writing. Exactly. And above all, don't worry about all those people that say, oh, the writing world is so competitive, and it takes one in a million people that will actually write or, and actually make it, because I'm here to tell you, um, if you look on Audible, or you look on the Kindle, like the, the, you know, the Amazon store, or you look in any library, there's millions of books out there. And yeah, you might write something that ends up, you know, not making it, or you might write the next bestseller and not even know it. J.K. Rowling didn't set out to write, like, a multi-billion dollar franchise. It just kind of happened. Um, so, I mean, don't worry about it. And yes, the first thing you write, the first draft, I should say, will be utter garbage. It's just the way it is, and that's okay. The first draft is supposed to be garbage. That's all right. You make garbage, and then you refine it, you recycle it, and you find what works, and then you have a lot more interesting stuff. So don't get discouraged. But that's very important too, is uh, having a good mentor or someone who can be honest with you, because I think a lot of listeners don't really know about myself, is that uh, among my various ventures, I took one year trying to publish my fantasy novels, and uh, I didn't think they was they would go. I didn't think they would sell, and they didn't uh, got rejected again and again. And after a year, I pretty much had to sort of shelve the idea as a bad job because, well, you know, the uh, uh, the, the house was running out of food. <laughs> That's starving writer, yeah. So, that can happen. You know, and and later when uh, Raimi and I finally hooked up again critiqued some of my work and uh, there were a lot of formatting stuff and and very critical stuff that a lot of my earlier readers, uh, mostly friends but some of them people on the internet never pointed out to me that thing that I knew it, it, it was kind of a crazy kind of feeling that you, you sort of know what you, what you got is good but you know that's something you need to fix but you don't know what what you need to fix, and you don't know who can tell you what to fix. 
And so it's not until uh, I found Remy, uh, we we connected on was it Facebook or YouTube? Uh, no, it was actually I think it was Skype. Okay, okay. So so you know it wasn't until we reconnected and uh, I he gave me a direction to okay how to make this better and it was a very liberating feeling because there's nothing so frustrating to know that you almost got it but you don't know what to do to polish it but on the upside you actually finished a novel that's more than i can say for myself <laughs> well i well the problem is it was finished until you went over well that, that's <laughs> what happens i mean you had a draft and you finished it, and that's more than a lot of writers, and myself included, can say, is you'll start something with a great idea, with full intentions of actually finishing it, and then you'll suddenly, you know, think, oh, well, this isn't good, or, oh, I should probably edit this again, and, oh, well, and then you just sort of give up. Whereas you've actually finished something, and while it may have its problems, it's a finished piece of work, which you can then make into something much better. I think that's one. It's a refining process. That, that's one problem I see with a lot of people. Uh, I do a lot of design with uh, some uh, RPG style uh, internet games, and uh, as admins, we see this as a problem all the time because someone's going to come to you and say, "I got this great idea for the game. I got this great idea for the for a new area, for a new world map," and then. Uh, they want to apply to be admin, and once you give them uh, the, the key to build what they want, you you will notice nine out of ten within three weeks they quit. It's true. <laughs> A lot of people realize that once you have to actually put those ideas into words, and the, the, it's a lot more difficult than you thought. I, I always say ideas are cheap, but to make them happen is extremely difficult. It's true. Writing is a commitment. You can't just suddenly sit down and plunk out a, you know, 40,000 words at the drop of a hat. It takes planning and it takes thought, especially when you're a new writer. It takes commitment. You have to actually do the writing, really. And if that means writing out, you know, paragraphs and paragraphs of utter garbage, well, then at least you're writing. And that's more than a lot of people can say. And with practice and with writing constantly, you will get better. Especially if you've got people, or at least one person, or the self-discipline to find your own mistakes, to, you know, and then, then you're able to get better. The only way you're going to get better, just like every other thing in life, is practicing it. Indeed, indeed. That's, um, quite often that is the key. It's just to keep at it and try to get inspiration from different sources, which bring me to the next interesting question that I don't hear a lot of people ask, but do you think that being visually impaired has any kind of impact on writing in general? Hmm. That is a good question, and it's admittedly not one I've gotten asked before. Um, I think... I think in many ways writing for me is an outlet to kind of there's a lot of things in life I can't really do. I mean, there's tons of things I can, but there's some things I can't. And I think writing for me is an outlet to get that, those, you know, those inner dreams and stuff out into the open to kind of fulfill them, I guess you could say. Mm -hmm. um, the other side of that, though, 
is there's a lot that you know I as a visually impaired person don't understand about people um, like facial expressions for example are really hard for me and so right. that's a little bit harder for me to to fake right. than say you know some good dialogue or some you know things like that description is always I've been told I do it pretty well but it is definitely not something that comes naturally to me whereas you know writing lore and writing character uh, character interaction for especially is, is something that I think I, I think I do pretty well at um, so that's definitely one aspect um, definitely there's some some aspects of being blind that have you know you know inspired you know certain aspects of my world uh, which is you know kind of kind of cool I guess but overall I, I don't really think there's anything more for me personally anyway I think for myself, um, the challenge has always been the visual specific stuff. Uh, like, uh, you, if you want a very poetic description of the sky and the uh, and the grass and how the light bounces off the leaf and get into different shade and how the sunlight plays on the water, those things when I write them, quite often. I'm more paraphrasing. I'm trying to recycle things I read before without actually truly understanding what I'm talking about. Take somebody who fully sighted out into a field or a forest one day and just say, hey, describe what you see. And what, you get, what you get is green, just green stuff everywhere. <laughs> well, yeah, if they have no poetic soul in their body. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> you gotta get. You gotta have somebody who actually has some sort of creative, you know, descriptive element in their in their lives. But I've I never think done that is. Myself, but I think it's a good idea. But I think that is very true, even for, uh, for any author. Like when they have to write. I mean, when when author have to write about the uh, uh, the the necrons or whatever crons and whatever thing they make up in the sci-fi, uh, thing. Now, no one's ever seen an uh, alien in person before. No one knows the, the shade of their skin. So a lot of that is really... You just have to make it up convincingly. Writers pull things out of their rectums all the time. It comes with the territory. Rectums. <laughs> um, it, it's just the way it works. And I think that's okay. As long as you can give it uh, you know, an air of plausibility and believability. And as long as you do at least you know, enough research to make it... you know you know, the things that need to be realistic, realistic. Yeah, great. That's that's wonderful. But a lot of times people, you know, will, you know, you have to make up things. That's what writers is. You know, they're, they're fiction. I mean, you can you can research fighting. You can research how blood sprays when somebody's shot. That, that stuff that's on the internet, you can, re, you know, you can research that. You can talk to people about that. But when it comes to things that are made up, like alien races or just, you know, things that don't exist anymore, then, yeah, you kind of got to just take it and uh, hopefully people you can make it sound good and when it doesn't hopefully your story is good enough that people are willing to suspend their disbelief a little bit I we actually talked about this before it's one of my pet peeves it's I wish that more authors would just properly research a little bit about fight scenes before they actually write them or at least take a few martial art lessons so that they know that how how things are supposed to work. <laughs> it would be nice. I, I agree. And there's there's definitely authors that do that. Our um R. A. Salvatore is actually he does some really good fight scenes where he is clearly understands, you know, fight choreography and how it works. Yeah, he does. I, um when I read his uh, 
books, and sometimes I would actually grab my sword and go through some of the stuff. You know, some some of us geeks like to do that, and <laughs> it's totally f uh, fun, and uh, a lot of stuff are, are actually plausible. Sometimes I'm thinking, okay, if I was an elf and if I was 90 pounds lighter, I can totally do this. But then we have other authors who got, you know, people carrying six-foot-long sword on their back, and... Yeah, I just... Hey, don't... You, you gotta suspend your disbelief a little bit. There's nothing wrong with a big old long sword on your back, as ridiculous <laughs> as it is. It looks cool, and sometimes... Sometimes looking cool is enough. Yeah, but how do they sit down? <laughs> They're heroes. Heroes never sit down. <laughs> you know, that's probably why most heroes just stand with their arms crossed, looking very cool. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> not, not comfortable to sit down. <laughs> yeah, I, I always wonder about that actually. Like in in the old days where everyone wore swords or people might carry axes and long bows and like uh, quarter staffs and stuff. Like it must be kind of chaotic for people to have a proper meeting in a meeting hall. Yeah, they just probably all had servants that just held all those swords. That that is true. You, you know, the, in in the uh, I I don't know in the Western culture, but in Chinese culture, uh, a lot of generals and emperors would have a sword bearer. That their their job was to just carry the sword. Now you think that would be an easy job? Yes, but imagine that uh, after a while, your enemy would learn if they want to kill you, they kill the sword bearer first. Exactly. Hopefully, there's some good danger pay. <laughs> yeah, I would imagine so. So, you are also quite uh, adept at audio editing, so I'm thinking that was inspired by Graphic Audio? Absolutely. www.graphicaudio.net No, no, you're not is... doing the rest of what, right voice. <sighs> I don't know if I can do Dwayne Beeman's voice. www.graphicaudio.net He can do it better. I don't have the deepest voice. Yeah. <laughs> But uh, www.graphicaudio.net, it's a fantastic and phenomenal website devoted to a whole bunch of different genres that basically they take audiobooks and they add voice acting and they add professional sound effects and music to the narration that's already there in an audiobook and they just make it amazing. It's uh, trademarked as a movie in your mind and that's exactly what it is. I've been definitely trying my best to emulate them for the past several years. Uh, they have better equipment than I do, but uh, it's a lot of fun to listen to, and for me, who's really been into audio theater, it's a lot of fun to produce as well. Uh, it takes forever to do, but it's a lot of fun. Yes, that's another thing that um, uh, Raimi's actually produced, helped produce quite a few of our songs, uh, especially the later pieces, and uh, speaking of critique, every time I send him something that I work on myself, you, I'm almost 100% sure the first thing I get back from him is, well, it sounds very nice, but the microphone's too fuzzy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, fuzzy microphones make for difficult editing, let me tell you. But, uh, so, how long have you been doing the audio editing, and did you actually go to school for this, or how did it all start? Um, it actually started a long time ago, uh, thanks to my Facebook memory uh, recap, I know that it started in 2011, in fact. And the main reason it started, I um, mean, again, I've always been a big fan of graphic audio, 
um, but when I was in uh, digital media, I was doing web design and uh, video editing and, uh, and stuff like that. Uh, it was a course. Uh, it was me and two other blind people. And the instructor of the, the course was concerned that we were not going to be able to do the things that they required in the class. And so we were actually almost kicked out of the class for a little while. And I just went up to them and I said, no. Um, you guys, you know, you guys give me a chance. I will show you that I can, you know, that I can do what you guys need. Um, so I built a website. Um, but the most important thing of this of this little talk is that I ended up getting in touch with one of the um, the digital media people who was specializing in audio production, and we got to talking actually on a on a uh, on a mock podcast of hers. And I mentioned the troubles I was having, and she says, well, instead of doing a video project, why don't you do something in audio? And I was already kind of dabbling into it just a little bit. Um, I had a really ridiculous, bad microphone setup, and I was just trying, you know, trying my hand at the uh, the, uh, the narrating and the voice acting and the, and the splicing together of everything. And so the two things kind of went hand in hand, and next thing I knew, I had a probably an 11 minute audio piece that uh, by my standards now was absolutely terrible but at the time I was really proud of and actually remixed it a couple years later and now it sounds way better um, but it, it kind of just sparked my interest in it and I didn't realize how easy and fun it could be and also how gosh darn difficult and time consuming it would be yeah, when I first started I had no idea how many things I'd have to learn EQ, compression um, you know spectrograms and, and noise floors and speaking side chaining I could, I could give you a whole bunch of <laughs> random, ta uh, random words to, to digest uh, it's hard it's not an easy thing to do when you first start out but it's a heck of a lot of fun uh, especially with me not being great at finishing things. I've got about four or five audio productions now that I've fully finished. Um, they're not necessarily complete stories, but they're definitely complete projects. And I'm really proud of all of them for different reasons. Yes, I think the most amazing thing is you're uh, pairing your great writing ability with your great sound engineering and you are the voice actor for your own project for all almost all the characters that, that, Mostly, yeah. that, that including the girls yeah that that was a bit ghastly <laughs> <laughs> my wife laughed her butt off at that whole that whole scene and that's not wasn't necessarily a part that i wanted her to laugh <laughs> there's only so much you can do with a high-pitched uh voice and a bit of voice synthesizing um, so girls are good and welcome additions to any project I do. But yeah, I do. I do do all the voice acting. Um, I've done all most a good deal of the sound design, all the sound effects and ambient sounds, um, as well as I'm starting to get into doing music as well. I've done a couple of uh, small music compositions for some of my projects as well, uh, which I'm actually pretty proud of. It was a little again. Music creation is its own beast, and it's hard to do as well, and just as just as time consuming, if not more time consuming, actually. But um, the finished product is always, if not necessarily one hundred percent professional quality, certainly something I can be proud of. Well, wait until the uh, spinning wheel song is finished, and I can feature that on another episode. Yeah, for sure. What I always say about Raimi is uh, he's almost like magic. He doesn't 
no uh, musical series and and uh, doesn't play a lot of instruments and stuff like that and and, and yet he can string together a complete creation uh, just with what he has and his technology and to me as someone who's played instruments for as long as I can remember and go on have to go perform on stage and have to uh, make a- uh, albums release albums and stuff like that that is so incredible that someone who doesn't have to go through the uh, hardship we had to go through can do all these things <laughs> you know, well thanks it, to the power of MIDI MIDI is my friend and yet, that's another thing, though. Because MIDI today is like leagues and leagues better than MIDI is 20 years ago. Oh, for sure it is. I've heard, I've heard some of the old timers griping about it, and I just think, well, I can't imagine what it's like then. But it's the best thing that's ever happened to my musical creativity then now. In fact, the first time when you said MIDI, uh, I kind of cringed a little bit because I wasn't sure what to expect. I was thinking. The kind of things we used to hear in the mid-90s, you know, almost sound like the old Super Nintendo music. <laughs> Muzak, yes, yes, yeah. I, I know, and actually those are pretty stock MIDI instruments a lot of the time. But what MIDI is, for those who are not aware, is it's kind of a programming language that works together with an actual, uh, you know, a music keyboard. So basically, uh, it boils down to the fact that I can create, I can play a series of notes on a digital keyboard that's hooked up, up to my computer. And then I can physically manipulate those notes if I, say, miss a note or it's not long enough. I can manipulate it to go where it needs to go and last as long as it needs to last. So for someone like me who doesn't play keyboard really great live, because I don't have that musical theory to back myself up and uh, and don't necessarily know all there is to know about playing a keyboard, uh, this is a great alternative, albeit sometimes a, sometimes a bit of a slow one. But it, it's allowed me to create musical compositions that I definitely could never create otherwise. So we are going to go uh, get back to martial art in a little while, but before that, I want to put you on the spot because you, with your great talent at uh, uh, voice acting and stuff like that, uh, a while ago you auditioned for a game, didn't you? I did, yeah. Um, a Hero's Call, which is actually uh, a, an accessible fantasy RPG done by a couple of guys who are really passionate about gaming and who uh, who decided that mainstream games <laughs> well a bl- vi- games for the visually impaired rather were not very good in the narrative department so storytelling most narrative games are specifically for mainstream sighted gamers and as a player of narrative focused games myself I love games that tell a good story uh, A Hero's Call was something I was really passionate about because it does from what I can tell uh, story is very f- much a focus of this RPG and for people like me who or, or people like Johnny I should say who don't have the opportunity to play games with a visual component it's a nice opportunity for them to get a taste of what this you know the the mainstream game market gets to experience because gaming is starting to be on par with uh, st- you know storytelling in movies and TV shows and books nowadays in many aspects. Mm-hmm. It, it is a very strong uh, subculture of the main society. So, can you give us some example of voices you can do? Jeez, I knew it. <laughs> I was afraid you were going to do that. <laughs> 
one thing I'm not all that great about is, uh, <laughs> is improvisation. That was always the bane of my existence in drama class. Um, well, maybe I'll do the one that my, my wife really wanted me to do because for some reason she thinks it's hilarious. This is, uh, back a while ago I did a, um, uh, I've never been to it, but I did a, an artificial sound walk through New Orleans. Um, and there was a there was a there's a voodoo doctor that I I did so maybe I'll do that. His name is uh, Doctor Hoodoo. Uh, so <laughs> can't believe I'm doing this, but here we go. Welcome to Doctor Hoodoo's house of voodoo. Learn about all of the things the voodoo and I can do for you. Trouble with your marriage? I can help. Need a little extra luck? No problem. You want someone hurt? Maybe wreck their day a little? Not a problem at all. At Dr. Hoodoo's House of Voodoo, you can choose. Voodoo Voodoo, you do Voodoo. Can you, uh, do... Can you do a pirate? Arbity, where be the gold? You got to go talk a little grog and have a little wench, and I don't even know what I'm talking about here because I'm not good at improv. Okay. Oh. Uh, okay, let's hear uh, Elven Highlord. The thing about elven high lords is they're rather... They mock humans so much. They think they're above everyone else. They just look down their noses at everyone and think they're the high and mighty people of the world. Really, they're really quite pathetic. Oh, that, that is really good. Uh, how about a, a lowly peasant? Please, sir, please don't whip me. I've been a good person. I pay my taxes just like everybody else. Please don't tile the guard on me. <laughs> I was not expecting to have to do this. <laughs> oh, this is awesome. Please don't spank my bottom. <laughs> oh god, I, I, I wish we lived closer because I would love to have you start the podcast every single episode. <laughs> has been brought to you by Johnny Ty and his martial arts classes. Um, Next time on Johnny's podcast. That almost sounds like me. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, that's a, can you can you impersonate me? Oh God! Now, now, now we're getting into racism territory here. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Tread carefully. And, Tread very carefully. I cannot do. Oh, yeah. Now I'm getting into like the 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 Indian accent. I <laughs> Hello, my, my my name is Johnny Tai. I am a martial arts instructor living in Vancouver, BC. See, I can. I, <laughs> I, do, I do not sound like that. <laughs> no, you don't. I, I think we're gonna have to edit that part out. Okay, so, Marjorie, let's get back that, into that'll this. Stop, that'll stop the voice acting now, though. So. Well, actually, 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 you did a fair bit of that when, when we were the, trying to do the one drill. Uh, we, we were uh, having a drill where an attacker have to be focused on the target while the other members try to distract him or her from their task. That was totally crazy. <laughs> So, um, do you think that blind people need a special brand of martial art or self-defense? 
of karate. I've done a little, and I mean a little, little bit of jujitsu. And then I've done some of the mixed stuff that you're teaching us, Johnny. And I have to say that in many ways, at least in a sparring sense, I don't think you really need a specific brand of martial arts in order to be competent. Certainly you, Johnny, have shown that that's not necessary. Um, seeing absolutely nothing, you're leaps and bounds probably above many-sided people who do martial arts. Um, having said that, though... Well, I didn't put world... him up to this, by the way. No, he didn't. He didn't. <laughs> I'm not getting paid anything for this. <laughs> um, having said that, though, I think in the real world, when you're actually needing to defend yourself, I think knowing some ways of doing so where you don't have to have the person that you're defending yourself from out of your reach is is definitely good. Uh, actually, it was interesting. I was uh, my father-in-law. He's into uh, Filipino martial arts, and so I, I, I've done a little bit of that with him too. And one of the things he always wanted me to do when we were doing uh, even hand-to-hand -hand or stick fighting is always keep your opponent's weapon, you know, within, you know, in contact with your opponent's weapon. And I can definitely see as a blind person the, the you know, the good thing about that is that you always know where they are. Now, again, I don't know how practical that is. I've never been in a real fight where I've actually had to defend myself. So I, I don't know what, you know, what I would do in a situation like that. I would probably go back on instinct, honestly. I don't do martial arts enough to have it, you know, committed to memory, so I would probably end up going back on instinct and doing a somewhat of a decent job as long as I don't sucker punch me when I'm not expecting it. Now, a lot of people get this uh, impression that blind people should stick to jiu-jitsu, judo, and grappling-style martial art, but as you see in our workshops, that striking is totally, totally possible for blind people. Uh, do you want to uh, try to talk a little bit about uh, that? Did you have that impression before, or did the workshop change any of your perception with regarding to possibilities and capabilities? No, I, I don't think I have that perspective that striking was not something we should do. I think it is important, um, especially. I do think that that things like jujitsu and judo are really important because they are, full, you know, they're more contact based. You're able to, especially when you're, you know, you're fully blind, you are able to be in a proximity with somebody where you can use, you know, use things like their weight and their balance against them. But having said that, uh, you know, the ability to strike while you're in a situation like that is good. I mean, the last thing you want to do is do one of those amazing karate poses and do a nice forward, you know, oizuki and, and miss completely and next thing you know you're on your, you know, you're on your stomach with their, you know, their, your, their, their foot on the back of your neck, you know, pressing you into the curb. But at the same time, you know, when you do have close enough contact that you know where they are, you know, the ability to, you know, deck them once in order to get away, you know, I, I can definitely see that being important. And knowing how to punch and how to strike and how to kick and, and how to do those things without hurting yourself is really important because, let's face it, not everybody knows how to punch. I think I think he throws the not hurting yourself in there because of a personal experience. <laughs> well, I, uh, ironically, the, the only time I've been seriously hurt in martial arts practice was when I was in judo, of all things, and pulled my groin muscle, which... Um, oh. <laughs> let me tell you, stretching stretching is extremely important. Um, so gro growing muscle. Okay, let's, let's hear that story. I want to hear about the growing muscle. <laughs> uh, it, was, it was just basically a, a grappling exercise, and it had me... I think it was because of the way I, I had to... It was like several years ago, but I think it was the way I had to kneel down. Um, I had pulled 
felt the muscle on the inside of my thigh, thigh very, very high up, and being able to spread my legs and move around without being in somewhat discomfort was not fun. I didn't like it. <laughs> that, yeah, that doesn't sound fun at all. In fact, um, I can almost relate to that because earlier I spent so long editing the podcast, I was uh, sitting in a chair, but I wasn't sitting properly. I was leaning forward a lot, so most of my weight was at that juncture between my thighs and my butt. And so when I finally went to get a glass of water, I stood up and I was like, ooh, something feels weird. (laughs) Always take care of your perineum. Uh, yes, yes. <laughs> the chode is your friend. I feel like now, it should be on a t-shirt. Now, you talk about uh, you never being in a real fight where you have to defend yourself. That's not exactly true, because as I remember, an ex-girlfriend tried to murder you before. <laughs> well, there was that. That's true. So, so let, let's hear that. I think that, that's the best story we're going to hear on this podcast. Uh, well, this happened back in, in uh, 2006. I was with a young lady from uh, from um, out east, and um, we 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 ended up breaking up, and it uh, was not the most amiable breakup. Um, uh, it kind of happened very suddenly, and she was not happy with it. So she ended up sending me. Uh, uh, well, she basically ended up staging a pregnancy. Oh. And lured me to um, to Montreal in order for me to you know just kind of see her and see the baby well the 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 baby inside of her I guess you could say. Uh-huh. Um, she originally she uh, in the emails originally she impersonated somebody uh, one of her friends and said that she had fallen into uh, what she called a pregnancy coma, which I did actually research and found out that it is something that could happen. Um, so I wasn't terribly suspicious at that point. Uh, I knew at the time that I wasn't going to be able to be there for her, you know, emotionally and physically the way I would, you know, maybe would have wanted to be. Um, and so her, fa- and this is all from from what she told me. Her family was deep into um, some of the the Aboriginal tribes in uh, in this in the province where she lived, and they wanted her to do uh, a ritual. Um, just kind of a binding ritual between uh, between husband or not husband and wife, but uh, just parents of a child. And I wasn't really sure what to make of it, but uh, it basically involved being in a virgin place, so a place we'd never been before. Uh, and it involved um, all sorts of things like herbal uh, herbal mixture, drinking, and uh, and tree sap on the on the body, and just all these things that, uh, admittedly, because I was you know trying. This is going to make me sound better than I probably was, but uh, because I was trying to be as good a person for her as I could, since I was the one that broke up with her, I wanted to support her and, and her baby, I went along with it without giving it a whole lot of thought. So she got me out east, and we went to a hotel, and uh, the first thing I, fi- I realized when you know we got there is that she, she didn't feel pregnant. Um, she would have been a couple months along, and, and by then, given her size and, and whatnot, she should have been showing a little bit and I I mean I was I was young then and rather naive and didn't really I, I thought I realized it at the time a little bit but I think I you know I had no experience in that sort of thing so I, I kind of <laughs> went along with it um, and just to kind of you know basically we did 
part of the ritual, which ended up being nothing like I thought. She used glue, actually, and pretended it was sap uh, to glue my hands and, and back to the bed of the hotel we were at. Um, and she gave me a concoction that I stupidly drank, not realizing it wasn't herbs, but it was actually a concoction, uh, or a cocktail of several, about 35 sleeping pills. Ooh. Um, and then she proceeded with, you know, doing none of the things that she outlined in the email. And I realized not too long into it that it was, you know, glue that I was that I had on my hands and on my back and so while she was doing her thing. Now, it's I guess it's important because the media wanted it to be important that she was also fully blind. Um, so she didn't see when I de detached my hands from the glue, but she did hear the sound it made and she was getting a little suspicious. And I don't know why I didn't just get up and leave at that point. I guess I was, I don't know, too trusting. I didn't think she was going to do anything stupid. Um, but anyway, turned out... Um, she asked me, you know, did you know, did I tell you that I was, you know, that I had to put something in my in your mouth too? And I'm like, uh, no, you did not, and that's not going to happen. <laughs> so, you know, she's like, okay, fine. So she got, you know, she got me all ready. She tucked me into, you know, I guess you could say she tucked me into bed, I suppose. And I, I just kind of went along with it, I suppose. Again, being, you know, trusting, not thinking anything of it, just thinking, okay, well, I'll play along. It's uh, the least I can do for you know, how I treated you. Um, so she, you know, she tucked the blankets up and, you know, she put, you know, she'd have music on and she was, she was starting to get nervous and, and saying things like, okay, we're, we're almost done and just, and just saying things that are, you know, really, she just, it seemed like she was psyching herself up for it, I guess. And, <laughs> and uh, it will all be over with very soon. <laughs> basically, yeah, yeah, basically like that. And then she, um, you know, she came up to me and she said, you know, she she came up and sat on the bed with me, and I was like, okay, what now? And she's like, okay, I think it's time you know it's time to tell you why you're why you're really here tonight. And uh, next thing I know, I feel something at my you know at my ear, and it's an earplug. And she had a Walkman with her. Yes, yes, she had a Walkman. Those things that uh, we would remember from the nineties. Um, and she had a tape that she pre-recorded with uh, a, a final message to me that essentially says, I'm not pregnant. But I wanted to let you know why you're really here tonight. Um, and I don't remember all of what she said, but it was essentially along the lines of, you know, I, if, you know, if I can't have you, then or, no, I wanted you alive or not, essentially. And next thing I know, I feel this metal at my throat, uh, right above my, right below my Adam's apple. And that's when things kind of, you know, went into gear. I'm like, okay, that's enough. Time to go. <laughs> yeah, I, I would think so. I, you know, instant adrenaline. Because, you know, I, I, again, I'd never been in a situation like this before. So I grabbed the knife blade on the edge. Luckily, it was a, you know, single-bladed steak knife that you'd get from the kitchen, which probably wouldn't have done a great deal of damage, even if she had done it. Hey, it would have probably hurt a lot. It would hurt, yeah. Uh, so, you know, I, I grabbed the, you know, grabbed the blade, threw, you know, sat up. I think I said something along the lines of I knew it or something like that and I, a lot of the confrontation is a blur but I know I definitely stood up I was shirtless uh, we were in a foreign hotel room in, uh, in a place that didn't speak English and, or at least not a lot of English anyway and I went, you know, I, I jumped off the bed. We were in this dark hotel room, so I couldn't even use my rudimentary vision all that much. I went, you know, went to the door. She was following me with her nails. I guess she dropped the knife at the time, and she was following me with her nails. She, you know, I, I 
turned around to confront her, because I knew I wasn't going to be able to reach the door in time, and I didn't know what else she was got, I, anyway, I think I grabbed her shoulder and just pushed her, and she ping-ponged into a desk and then pinballed off of it and came again, and I tossed her again a little bit, like, just, like, pushed her again, um, not thinking, just kind of acting again on instinct, um, the hotel had one of those ridiculous catches that you've, I've never seen before or since that wasn't no, like a normal one. So it took me, you know, precious seconds to try to get that unlocked. And, you know, she, all this time she's coming with her nails and, you know, just, just going... She was in her own headspace, I'm sure. Uh, eventually I managed to get out of the room, slam the door, kind of, you know, just full of adrenaline, breathing hard, you know, stumbling down the stairs, shirtless with this stuff stack, you know, stuck on my back and scratches down my front and went up to the, you know, to the hotel uh, guest clerk, or concierge, and said, you know, uh, I think, I think I was just almost murdered. I think some, I think the person I was with just tried to kill me. Uh, I think, or no, no, I'm sorry. That's not what I said. I say, I said, I think I'm in a little bit of trouble um, or something. I don't even remember. Maybe that's what it was. Anyway, the more important thing is he was standing with uh, one arm behind his back and one arm kind of on his hip and me being paranoid and full of adrenaline in a place that didn't speak English. Um, I'm like, you know, can I see your hands? Cause I didn't know who was in on this. I didn't know she'd like hired anybody to go along with it. Um, <laughs> Totally paranoid, of course, because that's what of happened. Of course, yeah, understandably. Anyway, I, I called the called the ambulance and called the cops and, and then called her actually and said, "Hey, you know, what time?" And I don't again, I don't remember the full conversation because this was back in 2006, but it was something along the lines of, "Hey, you know, you just tried to kill me. Why?" And that's when she, you know, she, again she reiterated, "Well, I, you know, I wanted you whether you were alive or dead. Essentially, if I can't have you, nobody else can." Wow. Um, and I said, okay, well, well where does that leave us? She just hung up, and I, I've never spoken to her since, but I ended up going to the hospital and uh, finding out how, you know, what I was drugged with, and I never fell asleep, never really got too drowsy uh, up until at the very end, but I knew I couldn't fall asleep because I knew the doctors needed to check on me, and then, you know, finally, when it was time to go to sleep, I, I couldn't. Um, everybody was concerned about my mental health and well-being from a, from a situation like that. But honestly, it, for some creepy, weird reason that I, maybe I'm only half a man about, uh, I, it's never really affected me all that much, honestly. Wow. It was, it was definitely an ordeal that was uh, very interesting. And I feel bad for for her that it got her, you know, got, that it went so far. She, I, oh, that was one of the other things that she said when we were, you know, we were on the phone together. She's like, I never thought it would, you know, that far. Uh, that's had, that's crazy she, because you, you would think that all she had to do is uh, put in twice the amount of sleeping pill and then she could skip all the rest. Yeah, you'd think. Yeah, I don't I don't know. I think, I mean, this is very, 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 like, months in advance premeditated. She had a, a bracelet that even said, in Braille, I was the one that killed Remy. Wow. So... That was something that I, I found out later. Kind of ironic, because with all that planning, you'd think she'd get the proper knife, at least. Yeah, well, I mean, you don't think about things like that. Or maybe you do, I don't know. Maybe. Again, I, I feel know. bad for her. Le learn, had... learn how to murder someone properly. Listen to more Johnny Tiger experience. <laughs> or don't. Or don't. Do it wrong, please. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, I don't know. It's I didn't press charges. I probably should have. But it, I, I knew her experience in jail would probably not be great as a person. Uh, 
I don't know if I regret doing that now. Uh, I think maybe I should have press charges because well, one does to one person, one can do to another. But I also like to think that you know, that was over almost ten years ago now, or back over ten years actually. Quite interestingly, that's also been one thing I ponder about quite often is if a totally blind person was to uh, kill someone or commit a serious crime, would they actually put them in jail? I think their lawyers would probably try really hard not to, but... I, I, I think most in most cases it would just come down to house arrest. Probably. Yeah. I mean, she had that for a little while. No, because because end, uh, most most jails are obviously you know most jails are not built with accessibility in mind so uh, I I don't no, know I how don't. I don't know how they would weigh that against a crime. Yeah, I don't know. That's good. That's a very good yeah. question that I hope none of us listening to this will ever have to find the answer to. Yeah, no. Maybe maybe one of these days I should be so lucky to get a lawyer on here where I can ask that. Yeah, you never know. Could happen. Or or you know. Uh, one of uh, one one of you guys uh, that at the night strike can go out and you know try something out and let everyone know how it turned out in the end. How to get away with murder: the Johnny Tiger experience. <laughs> anyway, you can make a reality show out of anything. Oh yeah, I'm pretty sure of it. I mean, ima imagine how big a news item it would be: a blind person murder somebody. Disclaimer, Johnny Ty is not sanctioning the use of deadly force against another person. No, 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 of course not. It's just Except a... in extreme emergencies. Yeah, yeah. Even in those cases, don't use deadly force. Yeah, it only goes bad for you, not them. Yeah. Uh, you know. Only only think about deadly force when you are just about to die. Although that's an in that, that actually raises an interesting question, because, you know, in a lot of these martial arts, we are trained to, you know how to really hurt someone and as I mean as one person who admittedly doesn't have the experience but who has been in a, in a life or death situation where you know your adrenaline is the most important thing that you're thinking of at the time just getting away you don't think clearly and I mean there's definitely grounds for wondering whether or not you know, too much force is going to be too much like had I known how to defend myself for real I don't know what I would have done in a situation like that. Actually, you, I have actually in, you, you, in most of what I heard, you did pretty much the right thing. Uh, I hope so. I, I think thinking about how much force to use in most cases would just end up getting you killed. It's a, well, that's, yeah. that's it, exactly. You don't, And that's the thing, you probably won't think about it. I mean, my, my first impulse was not to hurt her necessarily, but to just get out of there. But that's just me. Yeah, I think if your mindset is to get away, I I doubt very highly you're going to kill someone by accident, unless there's a real accident, like the person suddenly get a heart attack, or or a, a brain aneurysm, take choose that moment to burst or something like that. Uh, because although it is really easy to uh, kill a person when you know what to do, uh. To do it accidentally, it's actually a lot harder than most people think. Uh, That's good to know. You know, we we did survive until we until get to the top of the food chain. Uh, we That's <laughs> true. <laughs> um, it, it's like 
people talk about beating someone to death. It actually doesn't really work that way. Like, for you to beat someone to death, in most cases, it's not accidental. It has to be deliberate. Uh, because a person passes out long before they die. So, yeah, a little bit of a, a, a trivia there. So. <laughs> I mean, I consider myself to be an extremely aggressive and destructive person, especially in a fight, and in my years of sparring and tournaments and fighting out there on the street, I've never come close to killing somebody. And hopefully he never does. No. Oh. Let find that lawyer once again. I mean, def definitely there were people that I wished to kill, but no, no, we won't talk about that in the podcast. Anyway, <clears throat> yeah. Um, so, this has gone on a lot longer than I thought, but I think it is, it's uh, definitely a lot of good materials here. The intro you heard in this episode was Raimi's own work, and the song you heard in the intro was also his creation. And if you want to hear more of my work, you can find me on SoundCloud at... Uh, just by searching for Remy, that's R-E-M-Y dash C dash Chartier, C-H-A-R-T-I-E-R. And you have a YouTube channel too, don't you? Uh, I do have a YouTube channel. I haven't posted anything in a long time on it. It's uh, Altharius. It's just A-L-T-H-A-R-I-U-S. Although the brunt of my stuff is on SoundCloud. Okay, so... Thank you, Remy, for joining us on the Johnny Tiger Experience, whatever episode this is. <laughs> um, yeah, no problem. Thank you. Thank you for having me on the show. Yes, well, it's, hope, it's hope, a pleasure. hopefully we'll get you on the air again, because with you, we never run out of things to talk about. <laughs> well, that's the mark of a good and rambling podcast. Yes. <laughs> All right, have a good night. Yeah, you too. And now, a word from our sponsor. Hi, I'm Johnny Tiger, your host. When I was growing up, I went to many different dojo, learned many different martial arts under many different senseis. And most of them sounded like this. But only at Richmond Martial Arts would I walk into this. Hey? <laughs> Just in case I give you a fright. There you go. Thanks. Hi, how are you? I'm alright, how are you? Hi Johnny! Hey!
Hello Johnny. How are you? Jose. Hey, how are you? Good. Lots of people there. How's it going Johnny? How are you Johnny? Alright. Any dojo can take your money and agree to train you. But not many of them will treat you like family. Want to realize your dreams? Want to train in a friendly, professional and encouraging environment? Contact Richmond Martial Arts today at 604-241-7624. Again, that life-changing number is 604-241-7624. Visit us at http colon slash slash www dot r i c h m o n d k i c k s dot com slash that's http colon slash slash www dot richmond kicks dot com slash mention the johnny tiger experience podcast for your free trial class Three boys are waiting for their dads to pick them up after school. Bored, they started boasting to each other. The first boy said, My dad is a Formula One driver. He get off work at 5 and pick me up at 5.15. He's so awesome. Second boy looked nonplussed. That's nothing, he said. My dad is a jet pilot. He gets off at 5 and picks me up at 5 after 5. Take that. The third boy looked at them both and shook his head. Sheesh. You two are strictly amateurs. My dad is a government worker. He gets off at 5 and picks me up at 4.30. <laughs> wow. <laughs> <laughs> now, try to beat that one. <laughs> well, with that, we come to the end of the Johnny Tiger Experience Episode 9. I want to thank Remy again for being here with us. That was a very enjoyable interview. And as a bonus, Remy even edited that interview himself. So saved me a whole lot of work. Thanks, Remy. Um... Before we sign off, I want to again say that if you have questions, comments, uh, or want information regarding sponsorship or advertisement or have love messages you want to send to your loved one using the podcast, send your inquiries to johnnytiger at shaw.ca. Again, that magical email address is johnnytiger at shaw.ca. And now I don't know if you can hear that airplane passing overhead. <laughs> and my landlord said that you can't hear airplane here at all. Liar, liar, pants on fire. <clears throat> anyway, personal problems aside, you can also find me on YouTube as Johnny Ty or Johnny Tiger. You can also find me on johnnytiger.com. I'm also on Facebook, Reddit, and I'm easy to find on Google. Just type Johnny Tai, that's T-A-I, in quotation mark, with keywords like self-defense and martial art. 
and voila, there I am. Thank you for being here with us for this episode. Have a good night. Was granted just for me. It could be for anything. I didn't ask for money or mention Malibu. I simply wish for one more day with you. One more day. One more time. One more sunset. Maybe I'd be satisfied. But then again, I know Bali would do. Make me wishing still for one more day with you. I hold you every second. Say a million I love you. That's what I do with one more day with you. One more day.